My name is Alec Crawford, and this is Stay, a podcast about sustainability, technology, artificial intelligence, and how they impact you at home, at work, and around the world. I am discussing these topics with high-profile guests to give you important information that goes much deeper than other sources. Find out answers to questions like, can artificial intelligence save the planet? And how does ESG investing affect you? We can build a better, sustainable future together. Hi, it's Alec Crawford from the State Podcast, and our guest today is Hal Stillman. He's got a mechanical engineering degree from New York University, and he's worked at the intersection of international business and technology since the 1970s. Welcome, Hal. Hi, Alec. Happy to be here. So, Hal, tell me about your career journey. What was your first job? <laughs> so, my, my first job was at General Electric Reentry and Environmental Systems Division. It was my second choice. My first choice, my, my, it was my first choice. My second choice was to be a uh, operator of a nuclear power plant. And I thought that would not be so much fun being inside all day. So I took the job in Philadelphia. My first day on the job, my boss takes me down to the basement of this building. It's an old A&P, uh, a supermarket chain warehouse. And there are no windows. We're down in the basement and he walks me to a corner there and there's a whole lineup of oil drums. They're kind of a light gray blue stenciled on the side in black letters, the words feces, comma, human, meal evening before, spaghetti and meatballs. <laughs> so <laughs> looking at him, he says, your job, Hal, is to burn this stuff without any smoke. Obviously, the Navy didn't want to be trailed by, they didn't want to dump it over the side, and maybe somehow they were trailed, but that was my job. Wow, that's quite a, <laughs> quite, quite a first job there. And then, uh, and then from there, uh, at GE, you went to the Inertial Guidance Systems Unit, I believe. Right. So I, I, after I got my top secret security clearance at, uh, at the company, I think after about six or eight weeks, um, then they told me that I had to work on, I had the opportunity to work on inertial guidance systems. And these things are pretty complicated devices. They were all electromechanical uh, at the time with magnets and motors and rotating parts. And they would track the movement of a missile in three dimensions in space and try to guide it where it has to go. So it consists of a lot of different parts. At the time, electronics was, ceramic, multi-layer ceramic circuit boards with thick film uh, connections and individual devices, individual transistors and stuff. And all this took up a lot of space and was heavy. So we worked on what's called the Mark 12A nuclear warhead. And uh, for those of you who've never seen a nuclear warhead, it only stands about three feet tall. It's a cone-shaped thing with a base about maybe two feet in diameter black, ominous looking thing. And um, my job was to figure out how to reduce the size and the accuracy of the inertial guidance system. I was part of a team. We developed the silicon micromechanical accelerometer and the associated electronics for it. First time, I had to calculate what's called the circular error probability, the likelihood that it'll come down at the aim point. 
And after I did that and double checked my work, came up with about 200 feet, you know, from launch from the US ending up somewhere in the Soviet Union. And my boss said, come on and let's, let's have you give a presentation to the, to the top brass of the Navy who's paying for this work, come up to the demonstration room. The demonstration room had a nuclear submarine, a simulated missile coming out of it from underwater, blasting off going into space, you know, or a suborbital altitude. So it's called the bus, which carries multiple warheads, and then how it orients itself by the stars and then launches the warhead towards Earth, and then it's maneuverable. And I was responsible for the maneuvering part of it. And when I explained 200 feet circular error probability, this, I think it was an admiral, put his hand on my shoulder and said, son, you've just changed the balance of power. I said, what do you mean? <laughs> he said, now we can knock out those Russian missiles in their silos. Yeah, I took a deep breath and applied for a transfer the next day. <laughs> wow. wow. Where, did, where did you go next? I went to the aircraft engine group at, uh, at GE and worked on the helicopter engines, the instrumentation systems uh, for them. I was working in test cells with, you know, screaming engines and pushed to the limits of their capability with some of the jet engines with giant blue flames coming out the rear, working in test cells and instrumenting the gas turbine blades so that we could determine that they could withstand the stress and the extreme temperature. That sounds pretty cool. And, and yeah. eventually you went to a think tank, right? <laughs> eventually, <laughs> eventually, yeah. I, I decided that what I was really interested in was creative problem solving. At, at GE, I was in the engineering development program. They basically said, hey, we have a problem, go solve it. So uh, that's what I really like to do. One problem was that blades in, in gas turbine engines, uh, as in airplanes, they were breaking uh, without knowing why. And I tr ended up tracing it down to some adhesive tape that was put on the blade in a certain place in a process that migrated some element into it that caused a fracture. And so I like that stuff. I went to a think tank and we created new product and new business ideas for companies as a business. I was called Innotech and I worked on about 70 different projects from new amusement park rides to new ways to make light bulbs and all kinds of things in between. After that, <laughs> uh, there's a whole uh, journey there, but I worked in the chemical process plant using uh, engineering and design for rotating machinery. And then uh, I also started a, uh, a company called Orologic that developed the technology for the automatic external defibrillator. And that was in the 80s. We created a company, raised equity from private placement and developed the whole uh, technology platform that guides people step-by-step step through cardiopulmonary resuscitation, ended up licensing that, licensing that to medical device companies around the world. So now when I travel, I, I see AEDs everywhere. And I think back, you know, of all the struggle to figure out how to patent that and to develop it. That is super cool. 
So for those that do not know, you took your engineering skills and built a lead platinum house. Uh, it may even be double platinum in New Mexico. Tell us about that. Yeah, this is called the Rift House. It's Rift stands for Regenerative Ingenuity for Tomorrow. And it employs the latest uh, construction techniques and uh, energy efficiency measures. So house weighs about 11,000 pounds. It arrived on five trucks uh, in structural insulated panels. And then it has triple glazed windows filled with gas that prevent, that limit heat transfer. So the building envelope is the most important thing. After that, it's pretty easy um, to keep the house energy efficient. It generates 19 megawatt hours a year and consumes about seven. Has an air source heat pump and the first heat batteries uh, that are installed in a residence in the US. A heat battery is like a water tank, but a quarter the size. It uses a phase change material, a, a let's call it a wax, and it it's heated with the solar energy, and it retains the heat because it has uh, vacuum insulated panels, super insulation. And then when the house needs heat during the winter, uh, we just circulate water through the heat battery to a radiator. The house requires about 2,000 watts to heat itself. That's about one and a half hair dryers, and it's 3,800 square feet with 16-foot ceiling. So it's received lead platinum uh, with 89 points. The only way it lost points because it's not in the city for walking distance, but it's on a field. We're going to plant the field with native grasses and wildflowers and sequester carbon in the field. House offsets about 100 uh, to 150 pounds of CO2 every day due to the solar panel. And uh, my electricity bill is $8 a month connection charge so that I can deliver my excess electricity to my neighbors. Well, that's awesome. So, so tell us a little bit, bit more about SunAmp, which I, I believe you use their system in your house. So SunAmp is a startup based in Edinburgh, Scotland. They've received uh, a bunch of funding from uh, JP Morgan's Environmental Investment Fund, their ESG fund, to, so that they can develop this te technology further. A lot of business in Europe now, and it's coming to the U.S., they connect the SunAmp unit to a heat pump, an air source or ground source heat pump, typically an air source heat pump, which is easier to install. So you get, for each unit of electricity, you get three or four units of heat, and the heat is stored, so it's a demand-shifting technology. The beauty of it is that it's really small, and it's scalable. So you can make a unit that's maybe just, you know, two feet uh, high, uh, 18 inches wide, and two, three feet deep. And that'll store seven and a half kilowatt hours of, of heat. And so uh, in smaller size homes that are well insulated, that's enough heat for a long time. And you can uh, therefore demand shift. You suck up excess electricity from the grid through the heat pump, amplifying its effectiveness, then you heat your home. So. They're selling these things by the thousands, you know, a month now. Awesome. So shifting gears, let's talk a little bit about the Oris Investment Fund and uh, what your what your the scope of your role is there. 
Yeah. So I'm a member of the investment committee and I brought a number of technologies to this fund. Ours is based in Santiago, Chile. It's a $65 million fund focused on copper, two aspects of copper, the mining and processing of copper and the applications of copper. So SunAmp, for example, is an application of copper. It has copper-based heat exchangers in it of the same type that's used in air conditioning systems uh, all over the world. Uh, so ours is really um, designed to improve global sustainability. That's because copper is the essential element for decarbonization. Now, I worked previously, we didn't mention, as head of technology development and transfer for the International Copper Association for 18 years. So I worked with the senior executives of all the major mining companies on this. And that industry is focused on sustainable development and being uh, cognizant of the issues that arise when you do mining and trying to mitigate them. So ours has investments in copper mining. There are two that are particularly interested, uh, interesting. Well, one is called MindSense. So a little deeper, when you, when you look at an ore body, it's not copper or other metals that are associated with copper and not uniformly distributed. And so you drill holes, you blast, you got huge trucks moving stuff around. You know, it's very exciting to watch, but what's really happening is it's a logistics business. You're moving the high quality ore to be further processed to separate the valuable metals out. So you get byproducts, gold, molybdenum, rhenium, other platinum group metals, and those are all captured. But you only want to move the ore that makes sense. So um, and process it because it costs money and takes energy to do that. So MindSense has a device, devices that are mounted in a shovel. And they, as your big mining shovel, you can imagine, picks up, you know, 50 tons of ore. This device is figuring out exactly what the content of metal is it in it and said, is this worth processing or not? If it's not worth processing now, goes to one truck if it and it goes to waste for the moment and if it's good stuff then it gets sent to processing but the real beauty of this is that every shovel full has data in it and over time you build up a three-dimensional view of the mine and you know where the good ore is where the bad ore is many times when this is implemented we find that um if you look at the mine plan, every mine has a plan which block of ore you're going to take out. They say, okay, this is all waste. But when we go in with a mine sense equipped shovel and you pick up the ore, you say, hey, there's good stuff here that we would have thrown away. So the profitability of mine goes way up because you're processing less material, processing only good material, and you can increase your output and your profit really interesting to ruggedize this technology. And I was just in Chile, they just opened a hundred person service center where they're equipping, you know, shovels all over Latin America with this technology. And this is really what's called digital mining. We invested in this a long time ago. This company is 15 years in development almost. And um, it takes that long for industrial tech to mature. 
Yeah, so this is going to be critical because uh, I think we've talked about before, there is going to be a shortfall of copper production given the, right. the need to uh, electrify the world. Right. So that's the other really interesting technology there is that most of the world's copper comes from oxide ores, which are easy to uh, extract the copper from relatively easy. Nothing's easy in mining. But the world has lots more sulfide ores in higher concentrations. And the only way to get that is really through pyrometallurgical processes, which put off a lot of, you know, sulfur comes out. These are sulfide ores and CO2 takes a lot of energy. And so Sebo has developed a combination of chemistry and an industrial biotech that is used, can be used to leach copper from sulfide ores at a rate that's faster than anything else out there, five times the rate, which means you can mine sulfide ores from underground or from an open pit. You can you stack them in these huge piles, which are maybe 10 meters high and four football fields in length and really big, and you drip certain chemicals through it, they're on a plastic or a rubber mat, and you extract the copper from them and the other metals very rapidly. So this is going to be a revolution in mining because no longer do you have to, you know, use smelters. And no longer do you have to spend about 2% of the world's energy grinding the rock up into tiny pieces to float it, float the copper and other metals off the surface. So we're really excited about SIBA. We've just raised uh, $30 million from private equity funds uh, for this, for field trials, second round of field trials. And these are ESG investors who realize that, you know, if they can do something to help the world electrify, then we can move ahead in reducing CO2 more rapidly. Awesome. And what are some other interesting things going on in climate tech now? <laughs> well, I just think the energy storage area is really interesting. There's going to be lots of activity there uh, with new battery technologies, both large and small. I think small nuclear reactors will, will be uh, really important. I hope so. I think people need to realize that we live in a world that's just full of risk all the time, and that we could have nuclear accidents pretty much at any time. Yet we live with a whole global fleet of reactors. We've had some problems, but the new generation of reactors are so much safer. All we have to worry about, of course, is terrorism. But Yeah. And uh, for our listeners, I did uh, interview Patrick White from the Nuclear Innovation Alliance recently, so you can go listen to, to that episode. Hmm. So, Hal, are there any sectors that are just not prepared for the net zero transition? Well, I'm not sure that the automotive sector is really prepared due to the lack of deployment of, of uh, uh, charge points and the rate of charge points. I think it's for certain as ways to use electric vehicles, it's just fine. But you also think about ships, uh, aircraft, all the mobility systems, trains, they still rely on diesel, electric, or some other means. That's good, but I think that's going to change um, to more liquid fuels or hydrogen fuels 
and the distribution networks of those. I, I see a lot of opportunity in uh, high energy liquid fuels that are uh, that are much cleaner uh, ways to transport hydrogen cleanly, which is emerging, and also ammonia-based uh, systems. That plus batteries and the proliferation of fuel cell technologies that work off these things and are are uh, effective would be good. However, there's the catalyst technology that's used in, you know, hydrogen production, green hydrogen. This got a big problem using platinum group metals all the time. Uh, so I'm also involved in working on new catalysts to transform materials into liquid fuels. So going back to electric vehicles, what do you think is the future of small battery storage for electric vehicles? Is it still lithium ion or is it something different? Well, lithium ion and the battery pack system have a long way to go just from a perspective of copper and cost and effectiveness. Right now, people are you know, estimating roughly 100 kilograms of copper per electric vehicle or more. And a lot of that is in the battery pack in the interconnection, not in the batteries themselves, which use very thin copper foils as current collectors, but in all the interconnection and wiring. And I think there's gonna be a great deal of effort to reduce uh, reduce that. Uh, and that'll bring changes in batteries and also in the, in the cost. I think solid state batteries and much more quicker to recharge batteries are just on the horizon and we should see them within well within the next decade. So there's no going back to, um, uh, you know, to lead acid batteries uh, for that. But also, you know, there's, there's, places for improving the still the, some of the combustion technologies that are going on now. There's a spin out from Argonne National Lab called Clear Flame that really reduces the emissions from uh, diesel vehicles quite a lot. So these technologies will coexist, internal combustion and battery for a long time. And they'll, ultimately there'll be a transition to clean fuels and internal combustion and battery electric power. So I've been I've been writing about and reading about artificial intelligence a lot recently. <laughs> do, do you think there are, are some ways that AI could help with sustainability? Yeah, if I can just give you a dream. I mean, if AI could could live up to its expectation, I could give it all the knowledge about particle physics and the universe. And we could figure out how to extract energy from the universe, from matter more effectively. I mean, that's a real, uh, you know, that's where AI would be great because there's just so much out there and you want to create something beyond the capacity of Einstein. So if AI could conduct thought experiments and, and run them through and figure out how do we make nuclear fusion available to everybody? You know, so I think that's the positive side of it. And uh, there are, AI can be used in the design and engineering of many different products. Uh, I've been working with machine learning, again, in the copper industry, where we were able to use machine learning 
and the genetic algorithm combined to reduce the amount of energy that air conditioning systems use by 40%, reduce the refrigerant charge by 50%, and reduce the amount of material that's used by 40%. So these these things, using less material, using less energy to get the same result, that's the direction that will go in with AI-assisted design and development of the products. Because, you know, humans just on Earth without any technology, don't really make a big mess. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I mean, we've talked about HVAC before on, on the show. We had Scott too on from uh, Train Technologies, and he talked about, you know, increasing demand for comfort and uh, the need to That's reduce the, uh, the carbon footprint of uh, providing HVAC systems. So I think there are definitely people thinking about it the same way you are. Two ways to do it, though. I mean, you can, so much energy is used in buildings. So you improve the technology of buildings. That's why I built the Rift House to see just what's possible. And then to use the best available HVAC system in that dwelling and then be net positive. That's kind of the direction I'd love to see building policy go towards. Yeah. And what do you think is going to change a lot over the next 10 years that other people might have a tough time predicting? <laughs> That's a very difficult question. I think, uh, I think, so let's, let's just talk. I think there are multiple impacts that will happen from climate change, which is the relocation of people away from the easily populated in the areas of Earth that were warm and wet in the past where humans could thrive to, you know, mass migrations, we're already seeing that effect, but we don't know exactly what's, how that's going to play out. Will people go more rural agrarian again or go back to cities? And how will that affect everything that we do? I think climate change is a big question mark. People talk about resiliency, the ability to bounce back from bad events. I think that's a false uh, you know, direction. I don't think we want to be re resilient. I want think we need to be more imaginative and move towards a place that's just undisturbed by, uh, not resilient. Resilient means you have to bounce back from bad things. I just want to be able to persist without a trouble. And that was, you know, that's a lot of the thinking and kind of designing a house and a way to live in an agricultural community where you can be independent of everything, but also give back and be friends with your neighbors. I, and I think that the thing that's going to be hardest to predict is how people interact with each other. You know, I've seen, I think we've all seen that when there's a storm or there's a shutoff of gasoline for cars or there's COVID, People flee the cities. They go everywhere. There's no safe place because there's tremendous mobility. There's guns. So you can't hide. You can't put yourself in a fortress. We, we have to figure out how to live together well into the future, my children and their children. So that's pretty tough to predict. But I predict uh, that I'm perpetually optimistic. We'll figure it out. Or we'll kill each other. So it's okay. 
Yeah, I'm, I'm in the figured out camp. I have to say I was in Venice when they were, had just installed the new and were testing the new floodgates there. And they've been spectacularly successful from the uh, perspective of, of preventing significant floods in, in Venice. And that's the kind of thing that could you might need to employ someday in New York. You know, who knows? Absolutely. Yeah. So what advice would you give to an aspiring engineer? Uh, figure out the problems that are most interesting to work on and, and stick to them. You know, my direction, that's based on my experience. There are some things that are worth working on and that, that persist no matter what happens in the world. You know, and find something that you particularly are attracted to that's in line with your best uh, perception of what the future will hold and how you can make it better for other people. So just for example, I've, I've been working since 1996 on a quest to improve the electrical conductivity of materials beyond that of copper. Why would I do that? Why would I put myself out there, raise hundreds of millions of dollars from companies and governments around the world searching for this? Well, the answer is because if we could do that, then we would be well served to use electricity everywhere. We'd use less materials, we'd have more electricity available, less losses. And so you, you have to find something that makes sense. The other thing is you have multiple careers. I mean, I've been in technical marketing, engineering, design and development, technology management, uh, IT. Uh, so never stop learning and just don't get, don't get stagnated. Yeah, so how about advice for, let's say, the new CEO of an industrial company on the sustainability topic? Figure out how to include sustainability in every aspect of your business without being silly about it. Everything, the, the way where people work, you know, because every time you move people, things, you cause, you, you cause some effect. Everything you buy, how you buy it, and how you use it. And I think deep down, there's a, a, a question that should be asking is, what will my business look like? What could my business look like in the next 10 years? And how do I get there? You know, you have to be imaginative. Many businesses, I, I think we've all seen just say, okay, we're really good at this. We're going to keep on doing it, you know, and they watch other people do other things and say, oh, no, no, that's not going to work. So you have to be a little bit bold and take on something that has some risk to it, but move ahead. So just for the mining industries, the senior executives, they're, they're focused on the financial aspects of their business to a very large extent as they have to be. But the technology aspects of their business can have massive effects on profitability. And in the case of MindSense and SIBO, you can implement those technologies with basically no risk and move towards a more sustainable business model. And it, I question sometimes the hesitancy 
to take something that has basically very little, with no risk, and implement it just because it's different. Great answer. So the segment for the last few minutes or so is called underrated or overrated. So I'll mention some things, <laughs> and then uh, you'll you'll tell me if you think they're underrated or overrated, and uh, a, a brief answer why. So let's start with the new Halo video game inspired TV show. That's <laughs> it's really cool. Very enjoyable vision of the future. Awesome. Dennis Gartman, who coined the phrase Dr. Copper, underrated or overrated? Well, it's underrated, but maybe not by everyone. I mean, copper is a good predictor of a global economy, and it's going to be even more so. So pay attention to copper. The perfect Manhattan cocktail, underrated or overrated? Well, it's not a perfect Manhattan, just a Manhattan with only sweet vermouth. Totally underrated. It is the best drink in the universe. Elon Musk as an engineer, underrated or overrated? Uh, underrated. He's a risk taker, got the great ideas, has the audacity to move ahead. That's the way people need to behave in the world today. Albuquerque, New Mexico, underrated or overrated? Oh, definitely underrated. It's a, a, a city with 320 days of sun. You know, it has water this week, <laughs> but into the future. It's got a, a new uh, film school opening up at a ancient rail yards. And it's the kind of city where the people are just not giving up to revitalize. And it's an interesting place for sure. Trackman or other golf swing and ball flight analysis equipment, underrated or overrated? I think they're underrated. The more data you have, you would know this, the better you can do. And you don't really get feedback from just swinging the ball except looking at where it goes. So this is good stuff. The fusion ignition breakthrough at Livermore Labs, underrated or overrated? Well, it's both. It should not be underrated that we've made progress, but we need to understand the time that it's going to take to get that towards commercialization and the engineering and materials effort that's required to scale that up. Not easy. We need the AI there to figure out how to do it quicker, better. So using artificial intelligence for engineering tasks, underrated or overrated? It's hard to say. I don't go to engineering school now, but I would say it's got to be underrated because there's so many ways to use it and we should be using it. The movie Moonstruck with Cher. <laughs> it's underrated. Yeah, of course, there's that great scene where uh, where the plumber's extolling the virtues of copper, uh, copper pipe. So, yeah. And anyway, then there's copper. And then there's copper. That's right. Anyway. So this has been uh, it's been awesome. Uh, we've been speaking with Hal Stillman, who has a mechanical engineering degree from uh, New York University and has worked at the intersection of international business and technology since the 1970s. GE, Innotech, uh, just amazing interview. Hal, thank you for coming on the show. Thank you. You were listening to the State Podcast. You can listen anywhere you listen to podcasts. For example, Apple Podcasts. Please like, subscribe, and comment. And you can also find us on stayblog.substack.com. Thanks.
i'm afraid i can't do that.